Welcome back to the program. As we debate the ins and outs of nuclear proliferation on editorial pages and in the drawing rooms of Georgetown, in the halls of Congress and in the boiler room political operations of APAC, it's worth taking note of this 70th anniversary of the dawn of the nuclear age and looking at the full impact of what we are actually talking about, a decision that to date only the U.S. has made, not once, but twice. As powerful as the bomb on Hiroshima was, it was the second bomb three days later on Nagasaki that was even more devastating. Today, in the shadow of talks about other nations joining the nuclear club, we both note and remember the voices of the atomic bomb survivors. Author and journalist Susan Southard got to know many of the survivors and tells the powerful story of August 9th in her new book, Nagasaki, Life After Nuclear War. It is my pleasure to welcome Susan Southard here. Susan, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Jeff. Delight to have you here. You got interested in this story really back in in 1986. Tell us about why and how that came about. Well, it was really an unexpected experience. I was living in Washington, D.C. at the time, and um, I had lived in Japan and spoke Japanese and in some way heard about um, a survivor from Nagasaki speaking in D.C. So... I went to hear him speak, and um, for, something happened with the interpreter that made it impossible for that person to complete the job over the next, the final two days of his stay, and I was invited to uh, do that. So with great um, honor, really, I, I, uh, I read his English translations of his uh, presentations as he was speaking, but in all the downtime between his engagements, um, I had the opportunity to speak with him for, for many hours uh, and hear parts of his story that he doesn't say publicly. Um, and um, it was really a life-changing experience. One of the things that you discovered over the years of, of working on this and interviewing survivors was the tremendous reluctance on the part of survivors to talk about their experience. Tell us about that. Yes. You know, the the five survivors whose stories I tell made the very uh, personal and intimate decision to tell their story out loud, tell their story publicly. The the five survivors whose stories I tell in, in my book had already made the uh, the very personal decision to speak publicly and to tell their stories in, out to the world, um, as opposed to the very large majority of survivors who don't speak about their experiences at all, um, uh, often not even with their families, um, because it's such a horrific, unimaginable experience that to call up the memories is, is too overwhelming and painful. Um, but the ones I spoke to were very open with me. Do the survivors of Nagasaki see themselves differently, see their experience differently than what happened at Hiroshima? Well, I I think that uh, it's hard to say generally because I I maybe met 15 survivors and talked with them in depth, uh, uh, so I don't know for sure. But I I think if they did uh, feel that way uh, at some point in their lives, now they've they've gone beyond that, and they they so passionately want to use their stories to help the effort to eliminate nuclear weapons across the globe, and that's their 
their their really primary focus. Talk a little bit about that and the degree to which they are focused on that, even to this day. Yes, uh, the survivors in my book are now in their 80s, and um, one man who was 16 at the time of the bomb, uh, uh, his entire back was burned off, and, and he was debilitated for four years before he was able to really get up from lying face down all those years. Um, and he has lived in extreme pain for, for his entire life. Um, but uh, early on, he decided to become an activist, um, uh, you know, really like 10 years or so after the bombing. He made the decision very early on uh, to become an activist. Uh, the others that in my story um, made their decision um, uh, later, in, you know, in the 70s and 80s and 90s, for very unique reasons, one man saw uh, held his his first granddaughter um, for the first time, his first grandchild, and and when he looked at this tiny infant, it brought back a memory of him having to step over a charred, scorched uh, infant uh, in the ruins when he was helping with the relief efforts, and he suddenly knew that he had to do something to make sure that his granddaughter and all children wouldn't ever experience uh, what he did. How did the survivors see the United States and the decisions that it made? Well, I think that may vary, um, but the survivors that I um, uh, met and and got to know uh, very well uh, really don't hold anger toward the United States any longer. Some of them did when they were younger and and struggling with such severe um, physical uh, some physical disabilities and then the radiation exposure. Um, but now they have come to understand better uh, that they don't, they, they, they say that they don't, they don't feel angry toward Americans, but they feel angry toward war and they, they cite their own country's atrocities and, and mistreatment of POWs. Uh, and of course, the actual initiation of the war uh, with Pearl Harbor, um, but they 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 very much um, try to hold a sense of integrity to not have anger toward the United States, but to work toward um, the elimination of nuclear weapons. And the United States is one of the largest, um, you know, holders of nuclear weapons across the world. It seems that among those that have been or are still angry, that there are two levels to that anger. One is is the decision to use the nuclear weapons themselves, obviously. But the second mm-hmm. part is the degree to which the pain and suffering that was experienced was kept secret in ways that even w- was detrimental to the treatment of some of these victims, the medical treatment of some of these victims for a long time. Yes, it's so true. The... Um in in Japan, when the occupation forces moved uh, uh, moved in uh, in September of 1945, General MacArthur, who was the the leader of the occupation, um, uh, instituted a, a press code, a very uh, rigid press code, in which everything went through um, the occupation censorship offices. Um, and while the atomic bombings were not specifically listed in the rules of the press code, the rules of the press code ended up impacting uh, 
the media and and no mention of the atomic bombings were allowed for years. Um, so even within their own country, the people of Nagasaki and Hiroshima were um, were isolated, and physicians weren't allowed to publish their studies or their findings as they were trying to treat the survivors. So it, it was really quite a um, quite a setback. But they didn't know it. They weren't even allowed to. the The media wasn't even allowed to say that there was censorship going on. So the physicians knew it, and the media knew it, but the general population in Nagasaki didn't. So it was they were just trying to survive every day. And what impact did that have on treatment? What impact did it have on, on delaying or not allowing the proper kinds of treatment? Well, I think um, it's important to say that there really was no treatment available, even if if a if Japan hadn't been um, devastated and Nagasaki and Hiroshima hadn't been devastated. There, there, there was no treatment for for that instantaneous high dose whole body radiation exposure that more than any human being had ever received um, in history. So, um, you know, that's a really important point to say. That's that said. Um, the uh, physicians in Nagasaki uh, were handicapped because they had very few supplies in in the first year or two, and and had no foundation upon which to try to treat them. So they just kept trying to try different things, and then they weren't able to share their knowledge except maybe through private conversations. So that and they couldn't draw on the. Um, the expertise of other physicians that way. So it did limit their ability to expand their understanding of what to do in this very grave situation. To what extent was there survivor guilt? You know, that's a really good question. There was a lot of it. There was a lot of it because the, um, it, the many people lost all of their family members and they were the sole survivor uh, because of just the moment of the bombing, it was fate where people were at that moment and, uh, and, and what kind of shielding, how far they were from the blast and what kind of shielding stood between the, uh, the blast and them, for example, a building or a rock or a tree or nothing. And so the distance and the shielding made a huge difference. So if a family member was further away, the, the rest of the family may have been completely destroyed and uh, and killed and they it was it was a gripping part of of their survival um, to suddenly be isolated and then question w- why they were allowed to survive and the uh, and their beloved family members weren't there was really a tremendous sense of randomness in that regard yes completely and in fact the bomb was dropped, um, uh, I think it's about a mile and a half, I'm not sure of that uh, exact distance, from the, uh, from the aiming point uh, that, that mm-hmm. the, um, the, the American servicemen were given. Um, and so that, that turned out to be slightly different, too. But it was very random from that point of view, who lived and who died, not only in the initial horrific devastation of the blast force and the heat which melted people's skins off skin off but also in the um, uh, following weeks and months when the first uh, huge cycle of radiation 
radiation-related symptoms and death came. Some people survived and uh, slowly recovered from the radiation symptoms, and many others died within a week that the symptoms appeared. One of the survivors um, had uh, uh, a younger sister and a mother who were in the same place at the same time, at the time of the bombing, at home. And uh, one of them uh, got sick and died, and one of them never had, maybe had a tiny bit of uh, illness, but ne- but never anything grave. And it was co- a, con- a question that um, the survivor uh, asked herself for her entire life. Why was it that that her sister died and her mother didn't? You know, it was very uh, confusing. And were there any medical investigations that came later as to why that was? Did we learn anything from that experience? Yes, there have been studies from the fall of 1945 going up to the present day. They are still continuing to study the hibakusha, the, which means uh, the survivors of the atomic bomb, and um, and their children and their grandchildren. Um, and you know, it's it's they can't they they really worked those some of the studies worked for years to try to pinpoint exactly where each of the subjects of the studies were, uh, distance wise, shielding wise, and age made a difference. Younger children were more uh, prone to more severe symptoms and death, and and, and infants who were exposed in utero. Um, uh, in in their in their mother's uh, womb, uh, you know, they, there's been just countless studies and huge amounts of data that have come out, and it's you know they've been able to pinpoint exact age ranges that are that are um, more that were more prone, uh, compa- you know, children versus adults and things like that. Mm-hmm. Most of the, the, I think the five victims, the survivors that you talked to, were teenagers at the time. That's right. They were all teenagers. The youngest of the five was 13, and the oldest of the five was 18 at the time. Tell us a little bit about how much they really remember about those events, how much has been shaped by what they have heard and known since then, and how much is shaped by really what, what even as teenagers, they they remember from that time? That's a good question. I think that um, uh, that they, because of the level of heightened trauma that occurred, they ha- they do have strong memories, uh, or they did when they started telling their stories, and now they've told their stories so many times. You know how that is, that mm-hmm. you now remember it because, more because of having said it so much, um, meaning they, they tell school children who, who visit the Nagasaki Atomic Bomb Museum, they speak and tell their stories and things like that. Um, I did find uh, that there were discrepancies. I would... I would um, I interviewed them many times over uh, eight years, and um, and sometimes there was a discrepancy between what uh, a survivor told me um, in one interview uh, compared to another, and sometimes I had to go back and and uh, clarify that. Sometimes I I often had to find external sources from other people who were in that same region they were at the time of the bombing. Um, some of them, like one, the 13-year-old boy whose face was completely burned and charred in a very dramatic way, um, uh, was unconscious for the first four, four months, I think. He finally gained, he, 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 was, he remembered the day of the bombing and uh, because he was conscious through the next day uh, or that night and he fell unconscious. 
And so he remembers that, and then and then the rest of his story for over the next four months came from his mother, who told him what had happened and how she, how she and her husband found him, and um, and and how she cared for him until he was able to go to a hospital in December. So it's varied. I don't think there were any in in the five that you focused on, but there were also the story of the double survivors, people that had left Hiroshima and wound up in Nagasaki to get away and then were were devastated once again. Yes, isn't that incredible? It's just an unbelievable uh, reality for for them. Um, I I did not uh, interview any double survivors for the book, um, and... I am unsure if any of them are still alive. I believe, I'm not positive, that the, the, the final one who was alive died a year or two ago. But um, one, one of the double survivors, um, I don't know if he was actually in Hiroshima at the time of the bomb, but he, was, he, he took a train through Hiroshima coming back from Tokyo. Um, he was the head of the, the Nagasaki Medical College, and, um, and he... So he had seen the devastation firsthand, and he came back, and as did the double survivors who made it back to Nagasaki, and quickly told people um, what they had seen and the the unimagined. They they just couldn't even find words to describe what had happened, uh, especially um, because it had come from a single bomb. It was it was beyond what they could um, comprehend. Um, but only a few people told either their colleagues or their family. So most people in Nagasaki really didn't know yet what had happened in Hiroshima at the time that their city was bombed. Talk a little bit about the comprehension of it, the understanding, and what what the survivors, as you talk to them, what they thought about what had happened. Well, I think they didn't know, and I think their, you know, the instantaneous annihilation of a great part of their city and the incredible injury, physical injury, and then psychological uh, trauma, and then the radiation, which was at first completely mysterious because no one even knew that it was an atomic bomb at first. Even the physicians didn't know that. Um, I think that they they probably couldn't think too much about it in the in the initial days, weeks, and months. The the level of effort to make it one day at a time, one moment at a time, um, there was no, there was little food, um, there was um, little medical supplies, little medical, you know, it was very dire. And so I don't think they, this is my guess, I'm, mm-hmm. um, I, I, I don't want to speak for them um, directly, but my guess is that it was complete focus on survival. And, and psychological survival because of of the um, extreme loss and and the visuals around mm. their city while they they burned the bodies in the atomic in the atomic ruins there were for months and months there were uh, cremation pyres um, uh, in the ruins just makeshift ones with people used scraps of wood they could find to to burn the bodies of their loved ones not only immediately after the bomb but for many months as they continue to die from the radiation-related conditions. As the survivors today hear all the talk about nuclear weapons and nonproliferation and, and, and all the things that are part of the conversation today, how do, they, how do they process that? Oh, my gosh, it's crazy for them. First of all, the Fukushima incident was 
you know, re-traumatizing to many of the survivors because of the radiation released um, uh, from the nuclear power plant. Um, and when, uh, when throughout their, their lives, you know, as the United States kept developing more powerful bombs and testing them in the South Pacific and in the States, um, and other countries start, joined uh, and became nuclear powers, it was, for those who knew and followed that, which wasn't everyone, um, it was incredibly um, intense for them to know that more bombs, more powerful bombs were being, were being built and, and stockpiled um, in great numbers. It was so hard. And even now, I, I haven't talked to any of them recently enough to hear their thoughts on the, the treaty with Iran, but my best guess is that they would want that so much that any step toward um, containing nuclear power would be really critical. Susan Southard, the book is Nagasaki, Life After Nuclear War. Susan, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you, Jeff. I really appreciate it. Thank you.